0: This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson board-certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome again to Get Healthy 360. Today we have with us the Reverend Daniel Brighton, a longtime Anglican. He grew up in Port Hope, Ontario, where he attended Church of St. John the Evangelist, Port Hope, with, its, um, with his twin sister. He holds a bachelor's degree in English and in history from the University of Guelph and a Master's of Divinity, with distinction from Huron University College at the University of Western Ontario. Um, He began his ministry as a student minister at St. John the Evangelist in London, Ontario. Um, And currently he has a congregation of lay Anglicans dedicated to equal marriage and full inclusion of the LGBTQ people in the Anglican Church. And um, basically just what we're having today is as a pain physician, I often deal with people who have these chronic severe uh, medical issues and the, the question is frequently brought up well, you know, I'm, I'm a good person. Why is this happening to me? Um, what's especially sad is when you have um, patients and you have a child with cancer or some sort of other debilitating illness. It's just, it comes up sadly more often than, than I can think of is, well, why is this child who's really done nothing wrong dealing with this, this issue? And if there's a God, why is why would he allow this to happen? So we're answering that question and a whole host of other um, spiritual questions, because if you're dealing with pain, the question of, of spirituality and why is this happening often comes up. So Daniel, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks. Oh, I apologize. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, thank you. Thank you for taking the time for this podcast. So we'll jump right into... Um, and and we spoke briefly online but the the quick question is why do bad things happen to good people
1: well i mean that is the question right and i don't i i don't think that i'm i'm probably going to be able to answer that question fully or or to everyone's satisfaction i mean that's that's a question that that all religions have been uh wrestling with and coming up with different answers to for millennia um and you know i think i think the, for me, the, the, the crux is, do we, do we see everything bad happening to us, um, simply as punishment? You know, is that, is it something that's being done to us? Uh, is there some sort of direct cause and relation, uh, cause and effect relationship between my suffering and, uh, my actions? Uh, you know, we, I think we, we have a tendency to sort of want to, uh, place a sort of a moral value on everything that's happening to us Uh, we tend to do that more with bad things though i mean you know very very less often do people sort of say why is this happening to me when it's a good thing right we we assume we deserve that or we've earned it or we've worked for it um and and we can justify it um but with suffering or with pain we we people have a tendency to automatically go to why is this being done to me and what did i do to deserve this And and i I question whether there's that direct cause and effect relationship that, that people often assume.
0: So you're as a, as a priest, you're with people really at when they're really hurting and really miserable. So how, how do you deal with, with that situation of someone has say lost a child or a spouse in a car accident and you have to deal with that grieving family.
1: I think the, the first thing, um, and, and this is something that you, you learn over time and sometimes through trial and error, um, is, is you don't rush to make the pain. You don't, you you want to try and make the pain go away. I think that's the natural instinct. Um, you know, I want to say or do something that will make you feel better. And I think the first thing to recognize is that I, I can't make the pain go away. Um, I can, I can maybe bring some comfort and some hope. Um, the most, that I often can do is, is, is assure them that they're not alone in the pain. Uh, because I think, I think that's often a big part of pain and grief for people is the loneliness and the feeling uh, like they're in this by themselves. And um, I, think, I think we sometimes do a disservice when we rush to try and make the grief and the pain go away rather than help them to process it and to be, to be in it and to actually feel it. Um so we say you know we we say things cliche things like you know god has a plan um or you know um if someone loses a child well god needed another angel i mean that's <laughs> that's really a bad theology for one thing but it's also it's it's not helpful i mean what does that mean for God? what does that say about god then you know that that god needed an angel so he took your child or um you know that someone's pain and suffering and grief is part of a divine plan Uh, So then how do you turn to that God in prayer, uh, seeking comfort and assurance when that very God is is supposedly the God who's behind your suffering in the first place? So I think I've learned to just not not rush in with um, wanting to neatly uh, sum up the meaning behind the pain and to say, you know, this is what it's about. This is why it's happening. And now that you know, you can feel better, because it, it doesn't work that way. Um, and, and I think, I think so often we rush in and we, um, we, we don't help people with their pain by letting them feel it and by letting them process it. We want to just repress it, um, often out of our own discomfort, right? watching you suffer is making me suffer and I don't want to suffer. So let's make you stop suffering. <laughs> and is that really about your pain or is that really, or is that about me just not wanting to experience that? So um, a, a big part of dealing with people in their grief and their pain is, is learning not to be afraid of it um, and, and being willing to just sit down and be with them in it when everything in you make, is, is wanting to make you run away or, or say something, to kind of just make it go away.
0: That's a really interesting thought because I, I can think of, of situations that I've been in where people have lost someone and and all the things that you said that you probably shouldn't say, it, it seems like it's the obvious thing to say, but it's probably not the best thing really to say, like, well, God needs another angel.
1: Yeah, or, um, you know, uh, he's in a better place. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I remember when my, my own parents died, um... Four years ago and they they died about four year, four months apart and I remember someone um, after my father died uh sort of you know talking about how my parents were back together again and um, you know they were in a better place and I remember that really struck me because first of all i've i think I've probably said that to people too um, I've certainly heard people say that, and on a theological faith basis, I thought to myself. I think that's true. I, I, I believe they are in a good place and they are together and they're not suffering anymore and they didn't want that. So yes, that is true. They're in a better place, but the point is they're not here with me. And that's where I want them to be. And that's why I'm in pain. Right? So that, that attempt by the person to make me feel better was actually an, an, an invalidation of my feelings. It's kind of like, okay, yes, maybe my parents are in a better place, but you've just ignored the fact that what, why I'm grieving is because they're not with me and I miss them. So I think, I think sometimes in our attempt to make people feel better, we actually are ignoring the real issue, which isn't, which isn't just the death or the disease or whatever. It's how it's affecting them and how it's making
0: them feel. So can you give some guidance then someone has has suffered a loss? Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that would be helpful to say?
1: I, I think simply, um, and this may not sound like it, it it's doing much or, or saying much to them, but simply acknowledging that, um, simply acknowledging their pain uh, and saying something like, you know, um, this must be very hard for you. Um, uh, I'm so sorry. Um, uh, I'm here for you. You know, if there's, if, uh, is there something I could do? You know, um, I think tr- not trying to make, sense of the the pain or the uh the thing that has happened um i think sometimes we want to kind of tie a nice little bow on it whether it's theologically or whatever we we want to give some meaning to it that will make it better and i think the best thing we can do is simply acknowledge the pain that person's in um, it, it's like saying to the person i see what you're going through you know um, i don't expect you to keep a stiff upper lip um, I know you're in pain and it's okay to be in pain. It's okay to be grieving. It's okay to be angry. Um, and it's not I'm not afraid of that. I'm not going to run away from it. So simply acknowledging how they're feeling and and not feeling like you have to make sense of it or make a, or give it some kind of meaning. Um, because because I think that's the other thing is part of processing pain is the person who's who's experiencing it has to be the one who gives it some kind of meaning. You can't impose that on people. Um, so when people come to me, I mean, if, they, if they're asking me specific questions, why is God doing this to me? Or, um, you know, help me to make sense of this within the context of my faith. And it's, you know, it, it's a faith that I share and I understand. Um, we can talk about that. But in general, for me to just walk up to someone and impose my belief system or my view of the universe and say, within this context, here's what your pain means. I think that um, I think that invalidates their own feeling and and also uh, limits their limits the process by which they give their own pain meaning.
0: So. Often. And this, this sadly happens a lot. Um, we've done a whole series of, on, on cancer treatments on the podcast, and it's, it's almost easier for a physician versus a spiritual leader to deal with, with that diagnosis because as, as a physician, I can say, well, you know, or especially, specifically if it's an oncologist, they can say, well, you have cancer and we're going to do these things, and this is how we're going to treat it, and this is your prognosis. But after all of, all of the healthcare people go away and the person is sitting at home especially with deeply religious people who have a really strong faith Mm -hmm. at some point they will ask themselves, I have done everything right. Why would a God who's supposed to be a loving God allow this to happen? Mm -hmm. And that's my question for you. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, and I, and I, I mean, I've been through cancer myself. I've asked myself those questions and I've certainly been asked those questions by other people. Um, I mean one of the things that that i I try to help people see um, is that you know first of all part of part of love you know we talk about a God who loves us and and wants us to love God back and and love each other. I mean part of love is also freedom um, freedom of choice, uh, which means that God also as well as loving us has to respect our freedom to act and to make choices, um, uh, that may or may, you know, may actually have a bad impact on us. Um, and that also means we live in a world where other people's choices impact us directly or indirectly. So, so not everything that happens in our life is simply, uh, God decided this is what should happen. You know, I think, I think when bad things happen, um, we, we, in our fear, we want we want some sense of control. And because we're obviously not in control, you know, if I got cancer, clearly I'm not in control completely. So I, I project that need onto God. So I want God to be in control, which means that God obviously wanted this to happen. God has a reason for it. And now if I can just figure that out, God and I can work out how to make this stop happening. And so I understand that need for people to sort of assume everything that happens was God's plan and, and was part of God's plan and God's desire. But I mean, the whole the whole story of scripture <laughs> is of a world where lots of things happen that aren't part of God's plan. That's the issue, right? Um, you know, God isn't in control of absolutely everything that happens because he's given us some freedom. He's given us some control. And, um, you know, I remember when I, when I was diagnosed with leukemia, I, I mean, I wanted to know, why, right? Like, what did I do? Did I, was, did I eat, you know, was my diet unhealthy? Um, Is it because I lived in a town where they had at one point buried uranium? Um, Is it because my father was a heavy chain smoker and I grew up exposed to secondhand smoke? Um, Is it a genetic thing? And, you know, I remember my, my doctor saying, yes, (laughs) yes, probably to all of that. But, but, but what how each of those factored in and, and how much of it you had any control over, you know, is anyone's guess. And I, so what I say to people is, first of all, um, you know, your suffering is not, is not necessarily part of God's plan. I don't, I don't think God desires anyone to suffer. I think God can use our suffering. I think God can use the, the negative things we're going through for our benefit But that's not the same thing as saying God intended you to get cancer, to teach you a lesson. Um, You know, you got cancer or, you know, someone, someone was killed in a car accident because another human being decided to drink and drive, you know, that, that wasn't God's decision. Um, But where you go from here and what you do with this pain, God can be part of that.
0: So when you, you were diagnosed with cancer, Mm -hmm. did you ever question your faith? Um, hmm, interesting. I,
1: I questioned, I didn't question God. I, I never, um, I never thought that, I guess I had such a, a, an intense, um, belief in God as a merciful and loving God that, that it never occurred to me that, that, that God was doing this to me or that God wanted me to suffer. Um, I did question, um, I did question the institutional church. I questioned organized religion and whether it had anything to offer to me, um, because, frankly, I, I wasn't getting much from, <laughs> from the church uh, in terms of helping me deal with this. Um, but it didn't make me question my belief in God. Um, in, in many ways, it brought me closer to God because I spent probably more time than I would have uh talking to god and thinking about the meaning of life and and what i would what i would want to do if i uh, you know if i was able to continue living it made me think about death it made me think about mortality and all those things that you usually aren't thinking about in your early 20s
0: so um and and that's a heavy place that for better or worse a lot of people either are in have been or will be in um what are what are some of the revelations that you had going through that
1: uh, how angry, I mean, I think anger was a big part of it for me. Cause I felt cheated. Um, I felt, I felt that it was unfair that I was, um, you know, I think I, I started doing all those things that we've been talking about. I started thinking, well, I've been a pretty good person, you know, like I, sure. I'm not perfect and I've made my mistakes, but I'm not a murderer. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not, you know, I've, um, Never hurt anyone deliberately that badly that I can remember. So why is this happening to me? And that's what got me thinking about the whole. Well, is this a cause effect thing, right? And I remember, I remember actually reading the Book of Job in the Bible, right? And the whole point of the Book of Job. For anyone who doesn't know, what what is the Book of Job? So the Book of Job is a, a book in the um, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, Christians call it the Old Testament, um, and it's an ancient. Uh, it's an ancient collection of writings about a man named Job, um, often pronounced job because that's how it's spelled j o b. Uh, and Job is a righteous man, he's a good man, uh, he's got his life is going well, he's got all these blessings. Uh, and then, at the very beginning of the book, um Satan, who is not portrayed as sort of the evil monster against God but actually part of the heavenly court. Uh, basically says to God, well, you know, yes, Job is very faithful to you and and thankful and grateful to you. But that's because his life is going so well, you give him everything he's wanted. So but if you took any of that away, he would curse you. And so God and Satan kind of get into this uh, bit of a, uh, you know, a a wager, uh, where God says, Okay, well, let's see, you know, and you can you can afflict my my faithful Job, and which Satan does, and he that doesn't look very good for God at this point, where he's like, well, let's let's test him. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and there's a lot lot been written and and preached about it, but what does that say about God? Um, I think I think the Book of Job reflects um, a certain per, a human perspective on uh, wrestling with this whole question of um, you know is is God is that what God is doing when we, when, when we suffer is God, is this a test? Um, And in, in part, the book of Job seems to suggest, yes, it is. But, but at the, by the end of the book, I mean, what happens throughout is is that Job loses all these things um, but he continues to sort of, you know, praise God and, and, you know, trust in God and slowly his friends. And then finally his wife are like, why are you still praising God? Like, look, what's happening to you. And he hasn't looked after you and he hasn't lifted any of these afflictions. So, you know, the famous line curse God and die, right? Like I think his wife is basically like, just go lie on a dung heap and just die, you know? And, and it finally gets to Job and he, and so he finally questions God. And so they have this big conversation, and the point of the conversation is that ultimately God says, "Look, I'm not answerable to you because you because I'm God and you're mortal, and um, if I had to answer to you, then I wouldn't be God, and how how would I be powerful enough or worthy enough of your worship and your trust if I was answerable to you? Where were you when I laid out the foundations of the universe? So it's it's this whole thing of of God saying to, to job um, there's no answer I'm going to give you that's going to satisfy you in terms of understanding what you're going through but um, but I'm the God that's uh, that has made all this that has laid all this out I'm the God that blessed you in the first place um, I'm the God you've been trusting all this time are you going to trust me now in the midst of this um, and job decides that that's what he's going to do that he is going to He's still going to praise and give thanks to God and trust this God. And everything he lost is restored to him in time. So, I mean, it's really, it's a, it's, it's a story of, of someone who is going through a lot of pain and suffering and questioning why and questioning uh, God. And in some ways it's an unsatisfactory book because, because God doesn't give an answer, you know? And there's a sense in which God's answer is, I'm not answerable to you. <laughs> and yet I found that actually strangely comforting because it, it was a sense of I'm I'm being asked to place my trust in something that is bigger than my my understanding, that is bigger than my suffering, that is bigger than my context. And I can actually have faith in a God like that. You know, I think a lot of people want God to just be a warm fuzzy blanket they draw around themselves when they're feeling bad. Um and and certainly God can be that. But sometimes God is like a rock right which is not comforting which is not soft but when you're in the middle of a storm you want to cling to a rock you just you don't want a, a sopping wet blanket around your shoulders and for me I remember when I was going through through cancer and, and reflecting all this that's what I thought I thought you know I've been thrown against this hard jagged rock called God and it's not it's not comforting me very much right now but it is going to keep me afloat during this storm
0: if I cling to it. And, and it did. That's a great analogy. Um, That's a, that's a great analogy. So to transition then, so there's, there's a lot of thoughts in a lot of different disciplines about homosexuality and religion. And at least in my medical training, there's a lot of physiology and and people are born the way they're born. Uh, What are your, what are your thoughts on that? uh on on so on homosexuality and are you born that way or you made that way and then what how does the church or religion view that because there's some um as i'm sure you are aware that there's some um religious groups that would say it's a sin but then i believe the pope just came out and said that it's fine so for, I mean, that's not a very eloquent way to say it, but what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I
1: mean, first of all, I think that's the, the hard thing is to sort of say, what is the church's view? Because it it depends which which denomination, mm-hmm. which church are you talking about and which people within that church, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I believe Lady Gaga isn't wrong. I, right. I think we are born that way. Um, I think that there are genetic uh, reasons uh why people fall where they do on the on the sexual spectrum and I think it is a spectrum I mean people aren't exclusive you know not everyone is exclusively homosexual or heterosexual some people are bisexual lots of people fall somewhere within the spectrum um, I, I think I think nature shows that in other species um, and and I believe that there's reasons for that you know um, but I so so I start from the perspective of it's, it's part of nature, um, mm-hmm. and, and if it's part of nature, then it's something that that's part of God's plan, it's part of you know, uh, God wants homosexuality to exist. Um, so, starting from there, uh, then, then is the question uh, you know, moral questions around so, how does one who is homosexual or that's their orientation live that out in a way that is life giving and? And ethical, and uh, you know, contributes to the community as well as is is pleasing and and um, you know, life giving for them. And so I've you know, I'm gay, um, and I've always uh, worked in the church for the full inclusion of of gay, lesbian, transsexual, um, queer people. Um, uh, as people who can be ordained as clergy, but also the the full inclusion and recognition of their relationships in the term in terms of marriage. Um, my own church, the Anglican Church of Canada, is still kind of going through this process. Um, overall, the church has has recognized the validity of of same gender relationships and called and called it marriage. But that was a that was a process. Uh, at first, we sort of. Acknowledge that there were gay people. <laughs> you know, I think you have to start with the fact that yes, that they're gay, and that's just naturally who they are, uh, and it's not a disordered, intentional, sinful thing to be gay. So that's the first step: is recognizing that their orientation is is what it is. Um, then the next step was to sort of say, um, well, it's okay to. And this is where you know I think the Roman Catholic Church still is at, where they teach that someone who is gay um, is not intrinsically evil or disordered, that that's their natural orientation. But if you're gay, you should be celibate, you know, you are not, there's, there's a distinction made between someone's orientation and someone's actions, right? Um, So you may be oriented towards members of the same sex, but you must not act on it. And, you know, what my church struggled with is, is how is that, how is that fair and how is that just? Because you know why? Why is it that heterosexuals are allowed to have companionship, to express themselves sexually, to enjoy intimacy with another person sexually, and we can uh, we create a context for that and call that holy, and we and we actually help them to live that out? But if you're gay, which we're saying is natural and part of God's design but the fact that you were born that way, too bad, you just have to be celibate now for the rest of your life. Um, And and we know from experience what what happens when you force people to be celibate and not give them um, healthy outlets to express themselves sexually, right? Even a person who becomes a monk or a nun and, and vows themselves to a life of celibacy is still a sexual person and has to learn how to deal with their sexuality if you simply repress it and say, this is no longer part of me or not be part of my life, it's going to come out in really
0: unhealthy ways. And we've seen that. So I'll, I'll, I'll digress a little, a, a little bit from that topic too. Um, I think that's, that's a fair question as, as a priest. Mm-hmm. And and how do you deal with that then? Because you're, from what I gather, you're celibate because you've married. No, I, no I'm, I'm married. Oh you're married. Okay. I I, I lose track of what I'm being celibate, so Okay, all right. I, lo- I lose track. But then there are other so then how how would you say that so the Anglican church priests can't get married? Uh yes, and
1: we also have women priests.
0: Oh, okay, I didn't know that either. Um, so then the transition then on that thought would be What are your, or what would either either your or the Anglican Church's view then on, say, a homosexual couple adopting a child? Because Mm -hmm. I think it'd be hard to argue that adoption is not a good thing. So, um, well, I mean, again, it it, uh,
1: it, so the Anglican Church it differs from the Roman Catholic Church in the sense that we don't have a centralized authority. Um, You know, there's sort of one Roman Catholic Church throughout the world other countries. Whereas in the Anglican Church, the Anglican Church of Canada is a separate church from the Anglican or Episcopal Church of the United States, which is, all, which is separate from the Church of England. But we're all part of a worldwide Anglican communion. So while we're connected to one another, we're, we're also independent, which means that we may have different rules and approach these things a bit differently. So I just wanna, I just wanna say that because I, I'm not speaking on behalf of every Anglican in the world. Um, and, and this is a perfect example of a question where Anglicans differ, um, uh, not only from country to country, but even within congregations. There's people within my own congregation who, who love me and, and love my husband and we get along fine. But I think if they were really pushed, they would say, I'm not sure I recognize a same sex marriage to be the same thing or as legitimate as a heterosexual marriage. Um, but we, we live together in that tension. Right. Um, uh, so my church does recognize same sex marriage. And and, you know, in in the Diocese of Toronto, where, which I'm a part of, we have uh, we have a bishop who is an openly gay man and he and his partner have children um, through uh, uh, through a surrogate. Um, so clearly, you know, our church is, is okay with gay couples adopting and raising children, whether it's their own biological children or, uh, adopted children. Um, and I, I personally would have absolutely no issue with that.
0: So what about the issue of women, um, pastors or priests? Because, um, uh, I, I don't know what the arguments are, but other churches will have the argument that only men could be priests or, um, pastors, mm-hmm. et cetera. Um, how does your, um, how does the Anglican Church view that versus other churches? Which it seems like a very divergent train of thought. Right. Uh,
1: so the Anglican Church of Canada, since 1976, has been um, has been ordaining women. Uh, and they you know, and the first ordinations of women that happened in, in 1976, I mean, that came after decades of, of, uh, conversations and debates and votes. Um, I mean nothing ever happens quickly in the church. Um, but you know so so I grew up in a church where women could be clergy i mean i 've never known a church that that couldn't have clergy uh, women to be clergy. Um, you know, my understanding is that many churches see. Uh, the scripture itself forbidding it. You know, there's 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 places in Paul, Saint Paul's writings that say women cannot teach in church. That a woman that a woman must not stand up in church and and dare to teach a man. Um, that women must be silent. Um, uh, people argue that Jesus only uh, had men as as apostles, um, which isn't true necessarily true. Mary Magdalene was definitely part of the inner circle, and uh, you know the the primary uh, the, the, cent, the center of the gospel of Jesus rising from de- death and being, and still being alive. I mean, the Easter, the Easter message was delivered to a woman, you know, um, his mother, Mary was the, the first person to know of his coming and the incarnation. So the incarnation and the resurrection, these two uh, pillars of the Christian faith, it, it was to a woman that this was first revealed. Um, so God has always used women, and 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 Jesus uh, certainly treated women uh, as equal to men. Um, so our church doesn't see any reason why uh, women can't uh, carry out that that ministry. Um, we certainly recognize there, you know, uh, cult. I, I think a lot of the the gender roles and the division between genders that we see even in scripture, I think we can. Uh, we can assign that more to culture and history than to that's God's will. Because right in the very beginning in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, it it talks about God creating humankind in God's image, male and female. Uh, So right from the beginning, both, both men and women, male and female, uh, reflect the image of God. And so there's a sense in which God himself is non-binary. I, I mean, I just said himself, and I try to use, I try not to use gendered language around God for that very reason, because God's very self is non-binary. You know, God transcends uh, gender, gender differences. Um, and And so I think that's another thing that one of the things we're sort of processing and debating in the church right now is well if god isn't male then why do we only refer to god in masculine in masculine language you know can god also be mother can god also be she um and i i believe i believe god can be called that so why can't a woman or one a, a person who identifies as female not also serve god as an ordained priest or pastor
0: um, so I've been asking you a lot of, of difficult questions and I'm sure you get a lot of difficult questions all the time. Well, I, I, I'm sure it's not the money or, or like the ease of your job. So why did you choose to be a priest? Uh,
1: well, there's a sense in which you don't choose, you're chosen, which I know sounds incredibly pious, uh, but it, it's true. I think, you know, we... It, we call it a calling for a reason. And I think the whole idea of calling and vocation goes beyond ordained ministry and goes beyond religion. I mean, I think you do what you do because it's a it's a calling, right? There's a sense in which, um, I mean, I, I, I remember when I first sort of had the thought, I mean, the very first thing that goes through your head is here are all the reasons I would be a terrible priest. Here are all the reasons why this will never work and why I couldn't possibly be somebody would be ordained. You know, chief amongst them was the fact that I was gay. And twenty-three years ago, um, you know, the church was not where it is now. So I, I thought, what are you doing? Like this is, this is so not going to be easy. But I, I had this sense that that's what God was calling me to. And the more I resisted, and the more I came up with reasons why I thought it was a terrible idea, and yet the more that I saw that that sense of being drawn was still there the more I thought, well, maybe then this isn't just about me and my decision and my choices. Maybe someone else does think that this is what I should be doing. And so, you know, for me, I, I went to seminary to explore that. I, I I kept waiting for someone to point out what I believed was already true, which is that you are so not cut out for this. And yet, every step along the way, people kept affirming and thinking, the process continued, even though I kept thinking, surely someone is going to wake up to the fact that I'm a gay man and I'm not called to be a priest. And yet here I am. So, um, I, I, what I've dis- what I've discovered over the years is the more the more you live out of your own authentic self, uh, the more I think you can truly serve God uh, and you can truly. Uh, do what you're meant to do in this world because God made you the way you are and so god isn't God isn't asking you to become something different so he can use you God is asking you to step fully into yourself because that's who god made you to be and what you are meant to do is always going to be tied intimately tied with who you are so your skills your passions your um, you know what you love all of those things are part of who you are because that's part of what god
0: wants you to do so you just you touched on um something that i'm hoping you can expand upon and it's the topic of unworthiness um i off i've spoken to i mean there are people who are say the head of some very large cardiology department or their heart the head of a cancer department or um like even special forces people have interviewed and offline they'll often speak of almost not believing that they could do the things that they can do. And in everyday life, I will, I will speak to people. And first they, they have a lack of belief in their own skill set, even though other people will, will tell them that they can do this thing they want to do. And it's almost a sense of unworthiness of being happy and being successful. And that's something that I've seen um, in many, many people in many different fields mm-hmm. and it's, it's fascinating that you would also touch on that. So I don't know if you've come to grips with that or how you advise people with that. I, I mean, I, I for me, at least I can only speak for myself, but I,
1: I always have a sense of unworthiness. And, and, and when I say that, I don't mean, um, you know, that I think of myself as this horrible, you know, um, undeserving, you know, wretched sinner. I mean, that's, that's not what I'm talking about, but there, but there's a sense in which, uh, you know, the things you you get, because of this, this work I do, I'm invited into people's lives and the lives of sometimes perfect strangers at some of the most, you know, important and intimate times of their life. And it's, it's a real privilege. And, and every once in a while, I kind of think to myself, like, who are you that you get to do this? Right. Um, and there's certainly times when I'm asked to do things and I think, what am I going to say? How am I going to, you know, how am I going to help this person? What, what, what am I going to do? Um, and so over and over again, I get the sense that no, on my own, I can't do this on my own. I'm probably not worthy to of this, but, but something bigger than me, someone bigger than me believes that I am. And so, you know, I, I see it as we're working together on this. Um, I think that sense of unworthiness I mean, it can go too far, like I was saying, to the point where you're doubting your own skills and you don't have confidence in your own abilities, and I think you should. But on the other hand, that, that sense of constantly saying, like, who am I to be doing this, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it keeps you humble. I think it, it keeps you from believing your own press, right? Uh, you know, you realize that while I may have some skills and I may be able to do this job, um, you know, I I also have my struggles. I also have my weaknesses. Uh, and being keeping that in mind and being aware of that, I think, not only keeps you humble, but it also makes you empathetic towards others who are struggling and not believing in themselves. Um, so I don't think it's always a bad thing to sort of say, I'm not sure I'm worthy to be doing this. It also makes you grateful, you know, because you realize... Um, what a privilege you have to be doing what you're doing. Uh, and that maybe you didn't completely earn this and maybe you don't completely deserve it. Uh, and that part of this is also a gift. It's not just something you've earned by your own hard work. It's also a gift from a God who believes
0: in you. (laughs) Um, what would you say is the hardest thing about your job? Um,
1: I would say, actually, I would say two things. Uh, one, and we've kind of touched on this already, is uh, by nature, I, I'm somebody who I want to help people. And when they're suffering and when they're in trouble, I want to make it all better. And part, the hardest part of my job is when you
0: can't make someone's pain go away. And you probably... That's, also- that's why it's chronic, called chronic pain, not, yeah. not short-term pain. But yeah, yeah sometimes and, you can just manage it. Then that's all you can do. Yeah, and I think I think clergy uh, and those of us in the helping,
1: you know, industries, I think we we need to learn that because I think um, clergy often and and we're often seen almost in this magical kind of way, like you have a connection with the guy upstairs, you know, people say that to me all the time. And so, like you can pray, and you can, you you know, you must have access to wisdom or some kind of power that can make this go away. It's almost like sort of the medicine man kind of idea. Um, And and it's like, no, I don't, I don't have that power. Um, It doesn't mean I can't help you, but I can't. But like as you're saying, I can help you manage, and I, I can help you process, and I can help you deal with this pain. It doesn't mean I can make it go away. And yet I I still sometimes put that pressure on myself and I feel guilty when someone comes to me looking for me to end their pain and I can't do it because I feel like like I'm letting, I'm letting them down. So I would say that's the first thing that I find hard about my job. The second thing is we wear a lot of hats as clergy. Um, You know, you're a teacher, you're a social worker, you are a, um, you know, you ha- you, you're you creative. You're having to come up with services and liturgies. And, and, you know, you're the person who's officiating and leading celebrations. You are with people at weddings and baptisms, which are joyful. And you're with people maybe on the same day at a funeral where it's grief and it's pain. You're also an administrator. Most of us spend a lot of time filling out forms and, and doing budgets and trying to figure out where the money's going to come from to put the new roof on the church and where, how are we going to get that money from our parishioners who also are struggling? And so, you know, there's the business aspect of it as well. Um, and so I think for me, it's, it's the fact that you have to wear so many hats and that you often have to change them so quickly. You know, in one day you can go from a, a budget meeting with your board of directors and you're, you're really dealing with numbers and, and money uh, to suddenly being on a phone call with someone whose husband just found out he's got cancer or a, a, you know, a couple who have just lost their child. And you have to suddenly quickly go from managing the, the clubhouse to how do I help these people manage their pain? And, th- and that can be very, that can be
0: really tiring. So do you actually get a day off? Um, officially? <laughs> so officially, I'm sure you get, but... Uh, yeah. It seems like you would always be on because you're a priest. And if yeah, you, you are
1: and it's, and that's, that's one of the things I, I personally, I struggle with a lot is, is those boundaries and, and saying, you know, this is my day off. So unless it's an absolute emergency, um, I'm not available. Uh, and, and also, you know, that, happens on my my extended holidays too um you know unless you actually physically go away and you're you're across the ocean there's always this sense of even though I'm on holiday if somebody dies if something happens in my congregation with people that I know very well there's an expectation I'm going to come back and deal with it um and if I and if I don't you know, even if the family's like, we don't expect you to come back. You're on holiday. Don't worry. Somebody else will do the funeral. You, you live with this incredible guilt, like, you know, because it's like, how can I say I'm not coming back to do the funeral just because I'm on holiday when I, you know, I'm within driving distance, I could come back and do it. Right. And, and it's a struggle because that's why clergy burn out because we're constantly not giving giving ourselves time off or, or seeing time off as legitimate, um, you you should always be available. And the, the reality is you can't be as a human being, you need your time off and you need your time
0: away, but it, it can be hard to give yourself that permission. So, so there's, there's a lot of stress, obviously, and a lot of different hats and a lot of different skill sets that you have to have. Um, but what would you say is the best thing about your job?
1: A friend. So a couple of years ago, I was I was actually in this show called the Clergy Project. It was um it was like a three person show with myself and a Unitarian minister and uh, a Jewish rabbi, the first female uh, rabbi in Canada. And it was all about what it was like to be clergy, right? And there was this line that my friend Sean, who's the Unitarian, had uh, at the end of the show, which I think sums it up brilliantly. He said, so, "You know, being clergy gives you." I'm paraphrasing here, but it gives you the best seat in the theater of life. And, and I love that because it's true. You, you know, it's exhausting, but you get to see, you get to participate in people's lives in, in such incredible ways, like the, the, the highs and the lows you get to know, you know, you get to know people and the, the, you know, the everyday details of their lives and, and I think one of the things I love about being clergy is, is you get to see people, A, that we're all the same. We all struggle with the same things, that we're all basically at heart. We want the same things. We fear the same things. And yet you also come to see how incredibly unique and individual we all are, right? Um, uh, every congregation I've ever been part of has been just a uh, A circus of the most interesting characters (laughs) you know some drive you absolutely up the wall and some just leave you baffled but I mean at the end of the day you go home there's always good stories right like I I I will get to the end of my life and I will have such amazing stories from my experience because people are people are wonderful
0: and what are some of the insights that you've had then um that say you would have or what are some of the what's some of the ways you've evolved in thinking about people or the world that you have now that maybe didn't have in your twenties? Um,
1: hmm. <laughs> I have to. I'd have to think back to what was I thinking in my twenties. Um, I think one of the things I, I've I've come to see is is just what I was just saying that that people. I think in my twenties, I was, I was much more aware of the differences between people, you know, like, you know, whether it was ethnic groups or, or different social you know, social economic groups or uh, where you grew up or your education and, and, you know, and, and how you build bridges between all of these different groups of people. and And that's kind of how I saw myself. I think at the time, it's like, my job is to, to go and, Build bridges between people and help connect them. And I think one of the things I'm coming to see is that actually, people are already connected. Um, it's it's sometimes it's pointing that out, right? That we had, we actually aren't as different as we think we are. Um, I mean, the number of times people have come to me in my in a congregation, someone comes to speak to me privately, um, and they're struggling with something, um, or they need help with something, and there's kind of almost like a A shame or a a sense of like, you know, I'm I'm ashamed to be admitting this because I know I must be the only person going through this. And, and of course, because of confidentiality, you can't tell them about everybody else. Right. But in your head, you're like, you are like the 12th person this month to come to me with this, with this issue. You are not alone. And so I think that's one of the things that ministries helped me to see is just how similar we are in our struggles in our fears, in, in things we want and that, and things we need. And if we could just be more open with each other, I think we, I think we'd have a much stronger sense of community because we would see that actually we're, we are much more alike than we realize.
0: Um, So in that topic of how people are very similar um, and it seems like everyone often needs the similar, like a very similar message or similar lesson, what would you say is, Maybe one of the, your favorite I, I, I don't know what the Anglican term would be, but the, your favorite would it be sermon uh, so, well, or uh, like, like it I mean, would be I a lecture it would be like a, or like to, a lecture topic or um, well i mean
1: it's funny i mean I, I preach pretty much every week, and I mean that sometimes you start to be like I, i'm running out of things to say like what more can be said on this but um you know they, they often say that every that every priest every preacher really only has one or two sermons in them and they, they they really just keep saying the same message over and over again in different ways. Right. So back in seminary, the, the, the person who was teaching us preaching basically said, so figure out what your sermon is, because, you know, you will have one or two messages that almost always are working their way into whatever sermon you're preaching. And, and I think what I've, what I've realized is my message um, is that, you know, I said this last week, actually, at the end of my sermon, it was, it was on love, you know, the two great commandments to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that these two, that these two commandments are really one and the same. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't separate love of God from loving other people. Um, And that love is not an emotion, something you feel it's, it's, it's an action. It's something you do. Um, And so when I, what I said at the end of the sermon is, you know, none of us love perfectly but all of us are perfectly loved. And I think helping people to see that, um, you can't just say that to people, you actually have to, they have to see you demonstrating love for them, for them to believe it. Um, but helping people to see that behind all of the pain, behind all of the suffering, behind all of the, the fears and the uncertainties of life in this universe, I believe there is, there is a loving presence that truly loves us and wants us to know that love and wants us to share that love
0: with each other. So could you could you make the connection then that that fear of being judged or that fear of not being good enough that many people suffer f- from, it's actually not so much of a fear of failure or not being good enough, but it's a fear of not being loved. And that's why they're afraid to do things. I, I, I think
1: a lot of our fears stem from that. It, 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 that fear of you know, at the end of the day, I'm actually alone in this universe that I'm acting It's all on me. Um, that if I fail, um, at the, at the, you know, at the best, if I fail, it will all crumble away and to nothing. Um, or at the worst, I will be punished for this. You know, that, that there is a, there is a judge waiting to nail me for every single little thing I get wrong, um, and keeping score and is going to hand me that Scorecard at the end of this all, and i 'm not going to measure up and I think um, I think that fear is there and and certainly Christianity, religion, um, particularly Western religion, has often uh, in, you know undergirded that belief you know the the, the reward punishment idea are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? But I th- but I find even with people who have rejected that or were not raised with that, just our culture is set up on this idea of reward and punishment. you've got to earn and you've got to just you've got to work hard to get everything you have um, and you know you will be punished and you will be held accountable for every mistake you make and I think that I think there's just a lot of fear in our society based on people feeling like. The world is out to get me, and I'm in this on my own.
0: So, I, with with I just, with that whole judgment theme that often um, is present in everyday life, um, there's there's the Book of Revelations, and you would know a lot more about it than I do. And they talk about end times and judgment and a very judgy God. What are your what are your thoughts on that? On end times and and that judgment? Well, I mean, I think. <laughs>
1: I mean, ultimately, I, I, first of all, I think that I think that 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 conservative evangelicalism fundamentalism um, is a is a problem within Christianity. I think fundamentalism is a problem within any religion. It's uh, fundamentalism isn't a religion itself; it's an approach to religion. And I think that. So, can, when you say fundamentalism, what do you
0: mean by that? Or can you clarify that word?
1: Um, you know, a kind of legalistic um, reduction of of the faith to um, a, a set of you know uh, uh, intellectual propositions that you must believe these things, um, and if you don't you are you are cast out and if you're cast out, if you're not part of our group, then you're not saved you will be you will go to hell um, and I, I find fundamentalism is um, is a very judgmental approach to religion. It's about using faith um, not to spread love and not to heal and not to help, but to divide and to control. Um, and to frighten people into submission. Um, I I think fundamentalism, I think we're seeing the the rise of, uh, within within my country certainly, but but certainly within the United States, the the relationship between politics and a kind of fundamentalist faith, um, wanting to use each other to further their own agendas, which I think is a, a terribly dangerous thing, Um, But I think, so I think fundamentalists have done a real disservice in making, I think they've misinterpreted revelation. I think they've misinterpreted scriptures and made this whole thing out of the end times uh, and fear of the apocalypse uh, and judgment um, that actually isn't there in the Bible. I I think, I think it's a misinterpretation and misreading of it. Um, I think there's almost this thirst amongst some more conservative Christians for the end times because they see, I mean, I mean, apocalyptic literature comes out of communities that are feeling disempowered, um, that are feeling like um, they are being oppressed, that they, um, you know, and so they start to see their own struggles with the powers of this world in a, in a cosmic context and that God is on their side. And although they seem to be losing right now, ultimately they will win and be victorious. Um, and, you know, and so although revelation was written specifically in the context of, of the Christian persecution by ancient Rome, we, every generation can apply it to their own, their own, uh, situation and and see, see it playing out because human beings don't change the same systems and same power dynamics continue. Right. Um, but, but I think that the, that those who focus on the end times, first of all, our, our forgetting Jesus himself says, don't worry about it. Like, you know, Jesus himself says, no one knows the hour or the day, not, you know, not the sun, not the angels in heaven, only the father. So like Jesus himself is saying, even I don't know what judgment day is. So just get on with your lives, live the best you can do what God has asked you to do, and let the end times take care of themselves. So it always makes me I, I'm always perplexed when Christians, you know, Pat Robertson does this about every five years with the 700 Club, right? He, you know, he comes online and says, this is the end times. This is a sign the apocalypse is upon us. And, and I keep saying, but you've, you've said this before, you know, you've, you've pre- predicted the return of Jesus so many times and you're always wrong. When are you going to stop trying to predict what Jesus himself said you cannot predict? Um, and I think, again, it's, I think it goes back to that sense of control. If we can break the code, if we can see scripture as some kind of secret code and we can break it and then we can figure out God's plan, then we have control over that plan. But I see it, the whole point is that we don't have control. God has asked us to simply have faith in him and faith in his compassion and mercy. um, And that's what we're supposed to trust in, not our ability to figure it out. Because if we can figure out the blueprint, the tendency is for us to then take it out of God's hands and say, we got it from here, Lord. You know, we know exactly what we need to do to, to, to bring about the apocalypse and to make sure our side wins. And I think that's completely
0: getting it wrong. So I'm going to ask you the hardest question of the day. So you have a, say I'm going to use the word dog. You have a dog, dog Mm -hmm. dies. Mm -hmm. Do dogs go to heaven? (laughs) Do pets go to heaven?
1: Uh, I have, I just recently had a conversation with, uh, a child in my congregation about this um, and I, I you know he said, do, do dogs have souls?" And I said, well, you know a, a dog, a pet is a living a living thing that you can communicate and love and loves you back so of course pets have souls And he said, well, do dogs go to heaven?" And I said, you know I think I think that's actually the wrong way to look at it. I, I said, I think dogs like all creatures, God makes them a certain way, and unlike human beings, they never vary from what they were made to be. They are just exactly what God made them to be, and they give glory to God by their being, and they never vary from that. So I said, I don't know that dogs go to heaven because I don't think they ever left heaven. I think the only ones who have to return are the ones who left, and that's us.
0: So uh, that, That's a great answer. I've never heard that before. <laughs> um, so, just to conclude, some quick questions: what, what is the average day? What's what, what does your average day look like? If there is an average day,
1: there is no average day, and that's that's one of the hard things. Um, I, I mean, an average day is um, is made up of meetings, um, you know, administrative meetings around about the organization, about the business of church. Um, also with with a lot of appointments with individuals who are looking for counseling or assistance um, in some way um, an average you know there's there's the local community there's my congregation but then there's also um, my connections to the wider church the wider diocese um, and participating in that with meetings between clergy and with the bishop and and that sort of thing um, it's writing sermons and preparing for the upcoming services and looking ahead to the next season that's coming up, because you've always got to be one step ahead, um, and and then you've got to be prepared in the midst of all that to put it, bring it all to a halt and set it aside because someone has died
0: and now you need to plan a funeral. Um. So yeah. So actually, I have to ask this question as well. It just struck me. So how does your significant other, um, deal with that? Because I can think of of lots of people that I know personally, and they work a lot like you do, but their significant other, um, has a regular job or what have you. So how do you manage that? Uh, with a lot of conversation, um,
1: a lot of forgiveness. Um, it's very, I think church life is very, very hard on clergy families uh, for that very reason. Um, because no matter how many times you try to set boundaries and, and put your family first. Um, the church often takes up so much more time, um, and and often families, spouses, and children end up coming second. Um, it's so it's not it's no big surprise that a lot of clergy ch- children grow up resenting the church and wanting nothing to do with it when they get older because they they saw it they saw it dominate their parents' lives. They saw it rip apart their parents' marriages. So it can be very difficult. Uh, as, cler- as a clergy spouse or a member of clergy family. But, um, I think if you have a, a I think if you have good boundaries, I think if you have an understanding congregation that realizes that your family also needs you, um, you, you simply work that out. Um, and, and I think if, you know, uh, Jane, I was a, I was a priest before James and I got together. He knew, he sort of knew what he was getting into. I said, you won't know until you've actually lived it. But, um, but he, he came into this with his eyes wide open. He knew that weekends, you know, were, I would rarely have a long weekend. I would always be working on holidays. You know, I would never have Christmas Eve off. Um, and he knew that. And so part of it is him being part of my congregation and so that he can share in my life here to some degree. And they know him. Um, but it's also us having a life outside of this this congregation and the church and having friends and things we do that have nothing to do with the church. I think that's really important. I see a lot of clergy whose whole lives, their social lives, everything revolves around the church. And I think that's actually really unhealthy because I think you need the perspective of, uh, you know, life beyond outside the, the institution. You don't, you don't go outside your faith, but you you certainly need to be um, away from the institution sometimes.
0: Well, and it seems like um, just the world often will will impose on on church life and spiritual life. How is your church dealing with COVID at this time? So we, uh, I mean, one one of the good things
1: about the the or the church that I'm part of um, is that it's not left up to each congregation have to figure it out. You know, our our bishops. Um, you know, consult with one another and made made some policy decisions, and then that meant every congregation followed the same rules and and, and, and i 'm grateful for that because it takes some of the responsibility off the individual priest um, so our congregations all closed to um, in person worship in March, and we were closed all through the summer until september thirteenth um, and then we were allowed to reopen under certain circumstance, under certain uh, criteria and we had to prove to the diocese that we had set up these criteria for them to give us permission to open. So, um, so we have one service on Sunday now, as opposed to several, uh, where we were allowed 60, we were allowed 30% capacity of the building, which for us would be about 70 people, but when you, because we have fixed pews and people can only sit in certain places and they have to be six feet apart, Once you measured all that out, we realized we could only have 35 people at the service. So uh, people have to call and register uh, to reserve a seat. So we know who's coming and we know exactly how many people are in the building. And we have a log of everyone who's been here so we can contact and trace. Um, There's no congregational singing, which is the part that I think my congregation is struggling with the most because they love to sing. Um, Everybody, including myself, has to be in a mask. So I have to preach and do everything in a mask. Uh, we are allowed to give out communion, but we're not allowed to use the common cup. So the congregation doesn't get any wine. They just get a wafer from myself. And I'm the only one that's had any contact with any of the communion stuff. So also a lot of the jobs that lay people would have in the service, um, as servers and all that kind of stuff, they're not, they're not doing that. I'm having to do everything myself to keep, um, you know, to keep a lack of contact, uh, between people. We're not allowed to hug. We're not allowed to shake hands during the peace. We have to just wave to each other. So the service is, um, I think people are happy to be able to come back to physical church and see one another, but it's a very different experience. And and it feels somewhat sterile compared to what we're used to. The the majority of my congregation still worship online. So since March, when we closed down my congregation, we've been um, producing, we've been recording the, the services and putting them on our YouTube channel every week so people can follow and, and worship that way from their homes. And most of my congregation are still opting to do that. But it, it, it's exhausting because right now, now we're doing in-person worship, but we're still producing the recorded online stuff. Um, and most of, most of us clergy didn't go to school to become video producers, right? So over the last few months, most of us have had to learn new technologies. We've had to find ways to um, do online and connect with a lot of congregations who are made up a lot of older people who don't have the technical skills. They, you know, they they're not used to being online. So this is all a completely new world
0: to them. So uh, I think that's that's a great way to sum up this um, meeting where we talked about pain and suffering, and COVID has caused a lot of pain and suffering. But the upside is that now you're you're available online, so you have a Twitter account, which is how I found you and your servants are online so whereas people who wanted to be a part of your congregation now they can even if they live literally all over the world so and that's been one of the great things is the congregation is has
1: come to include people you know all over the world who who see my church as their church and they you know they contribute and they they uh worship with us every week and i have conversations with them online and you know even before covid my my congregation we were think we were talking about we need more of an online presence but you get caught up in just doing the things that you need to do and it just kind of gets pushed aside so covid really forced the church out of out of their buildings to realize the church is not the building it's it's the community and there's all kinds of ways of of connecting and building community
0: um so yeah and I can think of, say, someone's in a small little town and they may not necessarily identify with the religious services that are in their little town, but w- what options do they have? But because of COVID, a positive thing is now they can reach out to someone like yourself and be part of your online family and then possibly come visit you Um And and I grew up in Ontario, and Ontario is a great, great (laughs) province to grow up in. So, um, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. Thank you for discussing some very personal and very difficult topics. For anyone who's listening, we're going to include all of his um, social media contacts, his Twitter, YouTube page, the link to his church. Um, Daniel, any closing thoughts that you have? Um, I would just, you know, I would just sort of say, just on that last note, we were talking about
1: community. Um, I think that this is one of the things we're, we're having to learn and we're, we're figuring out um, the balance, right? Because online is great and it is allowing people to connect in ways and with people that they would never, never otherwise be able to do. But there is still a place for the local community and for, for relationships built in person with one another. And, and the that can't be necessarily replicated online. So I think tr- we're trying to figure out the, the balance of that. And, and um, I just want to encourage people that, uh, you know, online is great and reach out and make connections, but you also need that, I think you need that in-person face-to-face connection as well.
0: Definitely. Um, and, and actually, I, as a quick question, mm-hmm. if there is someone um, that is, say, far away from you, but they just, your message resonates with them. Do you do online counseling or is that reserved to just your in-person congregation?
1: No, I do. Um, I I do online counseling. Um, I, you know, and and sometimes more formally, you know, they'll actually make an appointment and sometimes it's just conversations that start to happen. Um, So I, I have to watch my own, my own time uh, because that, you know, suddenly my congregation has expanded to be hundreds and hundreds of people and I'm just one person. So I've, ha- I've had to learn how to sort of set boundaries around my availability online just because otherwise I'm not available to the people who expect me to be available here. Uh, and it just, it, it can be exhausting. But having said that um, I am happy to uh, be available to people online if, if they want to reach out and I'll do
0: what I can. Fantastic. Daniel, thank you again for taking the time for this interview. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thank you for listening. If you
1: enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page.
0: We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.